Hi everyone, I'm John O'Frew and today on the Quorum Sense podcast, I'm joined by the queen of soil microbiology, the founder of the Soil Food Web in New Zealand, Cheryl Prue. Cheryl, good morning. Good morning, John O. Can you please go ahead and just introduce yourself, get our listeners familiar with uh, who you are? Well, at the moment, today, oh, a couple of days ago actually, I'm a 75-year-old woman and I have lately, I guess, in my life, come to decide that working with biology would be a good idea. I didn't really start until in the 1990s, early 1990s. Before that, I was an office worker in Auckland and quite dissatisfied, I might add. Brought up my children, mostly by myself. And once they sort of fled the nest, I decided that it was about time that I did something. So I, with a partner, I decided that I was going to go back to the land of my forefathers, Tipuki, Bay of Plenty, and go orcharding. So we, we popped down and had a look around at the orchards. At that time, this is in 1991, things were early 1991, things were pretty bad in the kiwi fruit industry. And the orchards were going dirt cheap. And we got a pretty good one, actually, up in the back of Tipuki. Uh, bought it set up shop, um, had no idea, had no experience in horticulture at all at that stage, just knew that I liked growing things. And I was pretty good. I was always considered to have green fingers. And um, my partner was an, an engineer. So he, he didn't really have a clue <laughs> at all on how to do anything. But anyway, we started and my family, as I said, were all down there anyway, and most of them were in kiwifruit. So uh, as far as our first spray program, we, we borrowed Uncle Ted's, who lived a little few miles away, and we borrowed his uh, equipment and we borrowed his spray suit. I don't know any of you who have been familiar with orcharding, especially kiwifruit in those days. Um, the, the spray program was pretty intense. This, this is in the days when every 28 days, days they'd put on an OP, not because they needed to, not because there were pests eating everything but because it was a, a preventative thing and so we wore we wore uncle uncle ted's spray suit honestly it was so disgusting you could have rinsed it and sprayed a dozen orchards and they would have killed every absolute everything in the in the place and uh, you know the next door neighbors was would tell you to me look cheryl uh when you put on this product don't leave your windows open don't leave your washing on the line uh, don't let your dog out because if you know if you're putting on a thing called high cane, if the dog drinks a puddle where the high cane is sort of dropped in it, the dog will die. And I'm thinking, holy heck, what this is! I left the filthy, dirty city to come to the clean, green countryside. I think, well, this is something wrong. So we decided. Well, I decided that. I was going to do something about it. And I attended, um, a bio, this is my first course that I did, my first biological course that I did in Tauranga Polytech, as it was known then. And Chris May, some of you may know of Chris May. He was one of the early proponents of organic husbandry, as far as orcharding and growing of things went. And um, in those days, this is when kiwi fruit, organic kiwi fruit, and there wasn't very much of it, was getting huge dollars. I mean, they didn't grow very much and the fruit quality was pretty pathetic, but it was very good returns. So I came back and told my partner and, you know, cash register ka in his eyes when he realized the dollars that we'd make and we, we decided to do it. And we just went cold turkey and rung up BioGrow in those days. That was the only um, organic certification system. And... They sent us in the, the book of words and we followed it. And um, it was pretty, pretty interesting, actually. I mean, the doom and destruction was forecast by everybody around us. You know, you're going to lose everything, da, da, da. But we didn't have a mortgage in those days. And so it was, we decided we'd do it. And I, I've, I've I discovered that it was a pretty neat place to be in an orchard that didn't have any spray in it. And I really, I became very passionate about it. I'm, I tend to be a bit of an A-type personality. I tend to be a bit boots and all sort of person. And um, 
I got every imaginable book I could think of to read and to preach. And we, in those days, we were with a, a, a um, pack house called Centerpack, when it was the only, or one of the very few organic pack houses around. And we formed a group. So all the organic people would get together and we'd go onto various orchards and we'd talk about what we were doing and everybody would sort of brainstorm. It was a really, a really good idea, I thought. And and I because I read so much and I became really interested in understories and things like that. And I, I grew a whole lot of plants and I used to farm them around to people and plant them in orchards to see which ones would survive. And I became quite an officiato in that tiny little realm of about 20 people on uh, on what should be grown and what would survive and what wouldn't. And I, I sort of felt that, that I was doing quite well. We were, we were pretty pretty well. And I, 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 I started preaching. I became a preacher, a bit of a sanctimonious preacher, I fear, but a preacher. And I, I, th I think I, I sort of, people started to ask me for advice because I was, I'm quite mouthy at times. And they asked me for advice and I usually would have some idea of, of, of what they were talking about or what they wanted, or I'd know where to find it, or I'd have some idea of, you know, well, why don't we check this and we'd go and do it together. And I, I think I'd, I'd always, people would say to me, well, you know, I'd be sprouting on about diversity under orchards and things like that. And I would say, okay, so for every different shape of leaf that you'd see in an orchard on the, on the floor of the orchard and, the, on the, and not the canopy, this is on the, on the understory. Like if you saw a, a long leaf, a thin leaf, a fat leaf, a leaf that was going, a plant that was going straight up or one that crawled along the ground, all that diversity was mimicked underneath in the root patterns and the way that the roots grow. Now, I didn't know a hell of a lot about biology, but I knew it was important. And I would just say biology was just a group thing, biology. And, and all that different kind of, all that variation in the root systems would attract a whole lot of different biology, microbes. And, and if anybody had said to me, well, how do you know this, Cheryl? I would have just had to say, well, I've read it Women's Weekly. <laughs> I didn't have a clue. I, but it was just an instinct. I'm quite intuitive, I think. So I, I started sort of talking about this, and this went on for several um, years. And I, I attended a few more um, biological training sessions with various people. I did the open tech, um, what did they call it? Biological husbandry thing. This is not the open, this is the open polytech in Wellington. So I did that. That was quite an and informative I learned a lot about soils and how they formed and plants and but they didn't really tell you a hell of a lot you know not a lot and then finally after a few years I think it was I can't remember the name of the guy anyway um, Elaine Inghams first came to New Zealand and it was an afternoon that we did and it was in Tipuna in, in um, Tauranga and I went along and I was just captivated with what she said because she explained all the stuff that I was sort of referring to about roots and bacteria and fungi. I didn't know the detail, but she had everything. It was a real aha moment for me. And um, by that time, I'd sold that orchard. I'd, I'd um, met and married Richard, Richard Prue, my now husband. And um, he was there as well. It was just such a revelation to hear her describing in detail and drawings and exactly how things worked and the relationship and how the plant fed the, the biology and I, was, I just she was only there as I said for a day um, I think she came and stayed with us that night because she wasn't happy where she was staying so we got I really grilled her and she was just an open book you know she'd just tell you everything she knew just fantastic and the next day she was flying out to um, Coffs Harbour in Aussie to do a three-day session so we hopped on the plane with her and went as well <laughs> and and we followed her around for a, quite a little while watching just listening to her we were living in Cambridge on another orchard at that stage but we had people that were helping so they looked after the orchard and um, I think 
when we came back home again, I just soaked it up, much like you did, Jono. I just went to everything. I saw Arden Anderson. I'd attended Denutra Texing. I did, I just soaked everything up. I attended absolutely everything I could. And um, finally, and we used to, at that time, we decided that the compost tea, those of you that may remember, which actually is a really good product if made well. And unfortunately, it is a tricky thing to make, quite a tricky thing. And so um, we decided that we'd make compost tea and we made the first brewer, I think, in New Zealand that was successful. And Elaine used to impress on us, and she was quite right, that in order to know that your product is going to be any good on the orchard or well, whatever farming system you're using, you've got to make sure, and you're working with biology, you've got to know what's in there. And you've got to have some idea of its diversity and how it's going to survive once it gets taken from the place where you're manufacturing it and putting it on the, on the ground. So we used to, every two weeks, we used to fly our compost tea over in a little bottle to Aussie to go to the, la the lab in Lismore, it was in Lismore, which is the top of New South Wales. And we did that, I think, for about four months. Cost a fortune <laughs> flying over and coming back. And then finally, Elaine said to me, so, oh, she said, would you like to take up the lab in New Zealand? Because there wasn't one. And I thought, oh, no, I, I don't think I could do that. And she needled and needled and needled. She said, you should do it, Cheryl. You should do it, Cheryl. And the person that the, in the uh, lab in Lismore said, yes, Cheryl, do it. And Richard says, do it. So I thought, oh, okay. So we did. And I did all my training in um, sort of three weeks and four week blocks in Lismore and come home and do some farming and then more more training. And then my final, I, we opened the lab, I think in 2003, January, 2003. So that makes it over 20 years ago, right? A few months over 20 years ago. And um, we had a little ceremony. We opened it in a little one room house or lab. We called it the lab on skids, <laughs> didn't have any, like it was all just natural timber. So it looked very bohemian, very, very, very Elaine actually, very hippie-ish. And, but I bought my first microscope, 40 grand it cost me. And um, all the equipment to set up the lab, you have no idea how much money it cost me. It's huge dollars for me anyway, it wasn't. It was heading towards the 500,000 just to set it up. It was, it was huge. Wow. With all the training and that, because the training wasn't free, right? You had to pay for it. So that was fine. So we had, I think we were in at that lab probably for about three years, maybe four years. And then we decided that we would like to move down to central Otago. So we packed up everything in two trucks, two big trucks and trundled everything down. We drove it ourselves with a whole convoy of cars and friends and that down to this place in central Otago. This is in Roxburgh. It's where we first had our first property and had a big lab there, comparatively speaking. It was a um, proper kitchen, a proper, proper scope room, um, a toilet, which was a luxury. <laughs> and we, we worked away um, I think we worked a lot with a company in Dunedin in those days who were really getting into the biological thing. Elaine was moving around the countryside then. She was making lots of trips to New Zealand. Arden Anderson, of course, he was still doing the circuit and many others as well. And we, I, 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 I suddenly sort of realised that if I was going to get people taking notice of the lab, you know, the soil food web lab here. Here we have this lab that we can look at the biology in your soil. We can start telling you what's happening there and, and helping you along the journey of changing things. And, and the only way to know if anything was happening in the soils, of course, they had to test their soils, not just the tea that they were putting on. So I, I, I sort of reluctantly realized that I actually had to get out there and do some speaking because I started, I realized that when Elaine came over or Arden came over, that um, I would get a lot more custom, right? And if the place was going to be a success, if the business was going to be a success, 
I had to get people learning about it more. And yeah, my very first one was down in Central Otago, down in the community hall in Broxborough. I was, oh, it's just terrifying. I can see a tough crowd down there, Cheryl. Jeez, you're not joking. <laughs> but they're very, but they already knew me, right? And and I'm quite good. You know, I've got two children and I know, and a whole lot of sisters. I know that you have to talk pretty fast and smartly if you're going to convince any changes in that in the family. So I think that's what I, that's how I learned. Well, I had to sort of do the sell thing. And and you had to know your subject. And I knew my subject, but I just didn't know how to, you know, I'd have all these slides up on the wall, but I, oh, it was a nightmare. But it's amazing how practice sort of helps you along, eh? So I, I sort of got better and better at it. And although I look back now, and even ones that I did, say, a month or a year ago, seemed pretty infantile to me. And oh, I wish I'd said that better. I could have done that. But it's sort of, it's, it's sort of traveled from there. And it, I, I, people started to become really enthusiastic about it. And there was a few other players on the map too. There was um, another lab opened up. That was a test. This was a lab that tested via um, plate counts. I, this was well, a soil food web. It's all live counts. So you're effectively taking living soil, looking at what's growing in there underneath the microscope, you use a few a few different chemicals. It's it's quite an it's an exact science, as exact as that sort of science can be, and um, much more accurate at what is growing in the soil at any given time than a plate count. So for those of you who don't know what a plate count is, effectively they get a dish, they'll put some agar, which is a jelly-like substance. Maybe they'll add a few foods to it. And they'll make a solution out of the soil and they'll scrape it in a zigzag pattern, usually on top of the agar. And then they'll put the lid on the agar. So it's got, you know, a limited food resource. It's got a limited medium within that, um, plate, that plate. It's got a lid on it. So the type of oxygen levels and atmosphere and are standard. They're not changing. And then they'll put it in, a, in an incubating oven. So usually around about 70 degrees. And they'll grow it in that condition and then pull it out and identify what has grown. And that will give them an indication of what was in that soil. But the downside, and it's a big one, is that you're growing organisms in a very limited um, environment. And when you think of living soil, say just look out the window and look, in the, look at the soil. And if you just dig down a few inches, you're going to get pHs, for example, that are going to change um, at, at any given time during the day, depending on the temperature, and that the temperature itself is going to lift and fall. You've got the the food resources are almost infinite in a in a you know square meter of soil compared to a a plate that's got only two or three types of food sources in it, and um, you're going to have oxygen levels. You're going to have moisture levels are going to lift and fall. So imagine the stuff that's going to grow in that soil compared to the plate count so how can you extrapolate what's grown in a plate out into what's happening in the soil in real soil which is why the soil food web system is, is such a good one i thought it sounds a bit cheryl like how um a lot of data around what certain plant species require um is carried out you know controlled environments growing medium you know completely unnatural and then exactly we think we know what that plant needs. Oh, yeah, we'll put it out in the in the real world. And well, if you take hybridization, for example, they're doing the same thing. They're taking only they don't even know actually what they're fully taking. And kiwi fruit's a classic example. You know, when they when the old 16A, which is the first of the gold fruit, came out, remember, with PSA, and PSA just about annihilated that industry. And it transpired that. The PS, the um, 16A had a very um, compromised immune system. And so the people that had done the hybridizing in the initial stages, all they were going for was color and taste and size. They never thought about the root systems. They never thought about how the biology related to it or how its immune system would function. So just, um, just for the listeners, Cheryl, PSA, what is PSA? 
Oh gosh, it's a, I can never remember the full name. It is a bacterial uh, disease that attacks kiwi fruit. Uh, it was, um, you know, the kiwi fruit industry's mega millions of dollars worth. And that year that the PSA struck and it came in apparently from Italy and it, um, it's, it attacks the roots, it attacks the stem, it attacks the leaves, it attacks the fruit. You can tell when a, a, a plant has it because the leaves start to go sort of crunchy and yellowish around the outside and sort of build a necrosis, sort of like ulcers and things on it. Um, the, the trunk itself will actually have open sores on it and they will weep. The fruit, the, the root system is compromised. And if your root system is compromised, it can't function properly and the fruit doesn't form properly and the fruit is doesn't size. So it, the, the plant will die, actually. Check, check yeah. that, Cheryl. I've just looked up on MPI's website um, about PSA and they've labeled it kiwi fruit vine cracker, which makes total sense to what you've just described. Yeah. But the last, uh, the last comment is here, in New Zealand, the kiwi fruit industry has largely recovered due to the planting of gold kiwi fruit varieties that are more tolerant of the strains of PSA present here. Exactly. Interesting. They did. They changed the rootstock. They changed, they call it GA now, which is the, the model number, <laughs> for want of a better word. Um, interestingly, and I'm working, believe it or not, I am working part-time in a pack house. I'm a trainer. And um, I do a, quite a bit of grading. And I see the fruit going over the grader. And it is huge like much bigger than it used to be but it is soft it is falling over it has got diseases blemishes they call it and there's a whole lot of other stuff that forms on the and of course when it's if the fruit doesn't look perfect it gets turfed out either into class two or worse goes to to processing and this year particularly especially up here where the weather has been so bad the, the, and plants are suffering anyway. I mean, they can't photosynthesize properly because there's not enough sun. The soil is very, very wet and kiwis don't like wet feet. You know, when you've got a, a plant like that that's been grown with so much nitrogen, they're piling nitrogen on kiwi fruit. I can't believe it. Like, you're that, like there's no tomorrow. So you imagine all those cells in that plant are just like little sterile, exactly, full of, and they, they're soft and they're rotting. I'd... I just keep saying to everybody, I must drive them nuts. Too much nitrogen on this crop. Why are they using so much nitrogen? I'd love to get out there and tell them. But I'd really, would, I really would. <laughs> it's a bit like, um, you know, New Zealand, it's common to, like on cereal crops, you know, put, put and not just cereal crops, but a lot of seed crops, and we put all this nitrogen on, and then we get lodging, you know, it all falls over. It's like, um, and, and, you know, same with grasses, we, we put nitrogen on. It looks like you've got a lot of mass there. But it's kind of like empty. It's kind of like nothing. Yes. And um, like I read articles this year that yeah, kiwi kiwi fruit's not storing. It's not uh, it's not being able to be stored. It's just kind of uh, and and the, the value of the industry it's huge. So yeah, people want to get interested in this stuff. I can't understand why it's changed. You know, because when I was in the industry, like when I first started, this is back in the nineties, and we were in kiwi fruit for quite a few years. And, and although we were organic, even the conventional, like Richard, my husband, he, he started off in the industry when, like when he was about five, <laughs> he's been there for a long, long time. And admittedly, things have changed as far as the quality, um, you know, the quality has, has needs to be top notch for Zespri now. And they want big fruit. This is the market. They want big fruit. But they're also deciding taste now is really really important this is driven by the Japanese market oddly enough and that's when Zespri decided that you know just the size and the look and the color wasn't the biggie that the taste of the fruit was really important and they put a lot of effort now into ensuring that before it can even be picked it's got to be tested right they're looking at dry mat and they're looking at brixes and all sorts of stuff but They've, instead of now that they've moved to that stage, but they have have moved right away from the fact that we never used nitrogen on kiwi fruit. We knew just that this is with the old Hayward variety, which is still out there, um, that you didn't put nitrogen on because your storage would go down. You know, and the longer your fruit stored, the better prices you got. You know, people would want the fruit that would last right into December and still be like a bullet. You know, 
And there's no chance of that now. Fruit just falls over at the drop of a hat. And I am positive it's because they're using so much nitrogen. It's kind of like we got caught up in um, like this commodity-based way of farming. Like we're forgetting it's food we're growing. I think that's what it is. I think another generation has come along, so the wisdom of the older ones has dropped away, and they have the the new generation, if you like, not not just on age, but just the the new lot of people that are in, have forgotten that they're actually growing food. That which is sad, and and I think our politicians, dare I say, have forgotten that as well. Mm. Because even, even, you know, with the great swing now and the punishment that farmers are being meted out by, by politicians in the Green Party to say that, you know, they're doing things all wrong and that uh, they shouldn't be using nitrogen or, you know, the farmers are going to be the death of us all and they're destroying the environment, da-da-da-da-da. I, I think it's, that's not true at all. I think they've just not been taught. The new generation coming on just hasn't been taught that we're dealing with food. I've been taught though, and and what like what you say, people coming in, and I see it all the time, is like they don't they don't think that what the previous generations have to say is valid because they don't have the degrees or they don't have the you know the backup of of a university education. And absolutely that was a big challenge for me, you know, because I don't have a university education. Um I, I I really enjoyed school, but I don't think school really enjoyed me. I don't think the teachers like me very much. That's why you and me get on so well, Cheryl. <laughs> well, I've, I've got reports that, that say Cheryl disrupts the class. <laughs> Cheryl doesn't try hard enough. Cheryl, all that sort of stuff. And, I, and I'm not a rebel. I don't think. I don't think I'm a rebel. I think, um, I just think I'd... I think I was just bored, but I really enjoyed school, and um, and I think I might have been a bit of an airhead. <laughs> I think I was a bit of an airhead for quite a few years, actually, and I, I think I can say that with hindsight now, that my journey through life has been pretty, pretty progressive. It's been, it's been, I've learned a lot, a huge lot. And experienced a lot of bad things and good things. Although I've always been a plant person, you know, I can even remember when my kids were little and I was flatting in Mount Albert and I always had a veggie garden when nobody else had a veggie garden. And I just liked growing things, always had pot plants and they always did well. So, and I was always interested in bugs, always interested, you know, you, my, we weren't allowed to kill spiders in our house we had to take them outside and I did actually commit the terrible sin of ironing a spider once and my son was watching and I can remember he was absolutely distraught that I'd ironed the spider and I did feel bad you know this is the thing I don't I feel bad about I'm I'm really interested in living things I'm I feel for for all the critters i feel for the planet i'm really in, i'm really keen that we treat the planet well and not like the greenies say i want the farmers to be successful but i think that's probably dis- disturbs me a bit with the way that the government has come in and said that the, you're not allowed to use this much nitrogen you're not allowed to use this product you're not allowed to use that product but jono they don't give them any alternatives. And there are so many out there. You know, this is going back years. This is going back right from, oh, I've actually forgot to mention that I was an auditor for BioGrow. So that was one of my one of my journeys before I became interested in what Elaine was doing. I was an auditor for BioGrow. And, and I think that taught me a huge amount about farming, not just horticulture. And I, I worked up and down the country for every kind of imaginable process and growing system you can think of. I even went to Nui and did bees and um, vanilla. I went into South Africa and did um, horticulture over there for BioGrow. In those days, BioGrow was doing quite well. 
so and, and that was a really interesting thing I did find it a little alarming when um agri is it oh I can't remember what's the governmental one the governmental certification system assure quality assure quality when they came on board because they came on board just before I left and I know the very first time that I went out auditing down in central Otago and I, and I took Richard with me and we went to this old apple grower and he I carry I always carried a spade because I'd like to dig in the soil and I like them to tell me what they think's going on and that gives me some idea of how I thought their their, their mental process was working as far as organics went and and he I got the tick of approval because I had a spade but then when we went inside and we did the paperwork every time I'd ask a question he would answer Richard never looked at me because I was a female being a female had its drawbacks in that industry um although it did have a pluses and you can be cheeky as a woman whereas a man would take offense right so you can use your feminine wiles to get to get the answers that you need but I felt that auditing should be uh, an educational system you don't give the person the answer but I think you've to be a good auditor, you need to phrase those questions in a way that will lead the person that's being audited, the farmer, into stumbling across the right answer. I used to tell people that after, you know, once I bought the soil food web, that I didn't really think a lot about organics as a system because really it, the only thing that was certified was the system. It wasn't the product, right? We knew that it had been grown to a set row a set of, of um, criteria but that didn't necessarily mean that it was going to taste good or have be full of nourishment which is what I think a more general that's why I like the regenerative farming system because it's very much more holistic than 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 the organic systems used to, that are it was all you cannot do this it was not it was not yeah and like I love that you say this because we just been at the ODPG conference and it was brought up several times that it's organics doesn't mean the food is healthy no it's not it's not right I, there was one other auditor and I'll, I'll give him a shout out Dennis Cadwallader and he was brilliant he taught me a lot but he was of the same ilk he wanted it to be an educational uh, process not not, not um, that sort of sounds a bit highfalutin wanted it to be a positive process right so that they learned things so that um it led them down the track of discovering more into to being more inquisitive and finding information that they they required and to understanding why things were growing the way that they were and that's again why elaine's revelation when i first attended her that very first talk that she gave that workshop was such a revelation because i've been all these years talking to people and discussing things and hearing the difficulties that they had and wanting to be able to explain it and wanting to be able to qualify it with a bit of science behind it. And I couldn't because I didn't have it. So, which leads me back again to my lack of education. <laughs> I, I think sometimes education, especially, you know, like tertiary education, it can be a bit of a, a, down, a downer. It can, it can hold you back because you know, talking to some young people that have been through the university system and they're all full of vim and vigor and they're enthusiastic, but their minds are stuck in that system that the university has taught them. They, they find it really difficult to break away and think, well, that is just one lot of information that you can utilize perhaps, but don't close your mind to all the other stuffs out there, you know. And I think that's where the, you know, like to be a, auditor you're supposed to have a university education that's one of the criteria you're supposed to have letters after your name and to me you're running the danger of that being a closed-minded system then somebody that's not going to be able to to branch out and and create that diversity that's required for full-on learning and experiencing and applying it's not just learning is it You've actually got to know how to apply it, which and which which tends to actually cement the learning as well. 
Yes, yes. Not in a way that's like limiting, like you say, because I definitely understand what you're saying about, um, you know, you get that qualification. Uh, and there's some fantastic, I'm not saying all people have this, but there's some incredible people out there that will go and get a degree. And, you know, like you and me, it's not the end of the learning journey. But then, you know, you said to me, um, or you, you said just now in the in the podcast that, uh, you know, like people can't see, um, they can't, they struggle to learn new systems or new ideas. Um, but I would actually also add to that, like they actually don't want to a lot of the times. It's like they don't see a need to because why would they? They've got a degree to say they know. It's uncomfortable for them. It's Their degree is their security, perhaps. Not everybody. I don't like to lump them all together. But, no. but some young people that I've spoken to are surprisingly conservative. Mm. And not just young people, we have to say. Yeah. I know I know quite a few very qualified, uh, more mature people that are really digging the heels in at the moment. I won't name anyone. But I want to come back because I'm fascinated by a point that you made. See, I can see that farmers are getting a lot of stick at the moment. And you know what I mean by stick is like there's very little carrot. Um, it's all you must do, you know, regulations, bad farmers, bad farmers. Yes. Is that... I had it that this was a new thing. Is this not a new thing? Not really. It might be a little bit more to the fore at the moment with today's political system that we're having, you know, with the, the push towards uh, the environment and all that. I think that's certainly been the thing where anybody seemed to be doing something um, that's not accepted or not not regarded as the rule or as the according to some university professor is not not going to have I've lost my track of thought then it's disappeared right out the window it's like it's been amplified by um you know the the introduction of climate change sort of thing where all of a yes, sudden yes yes and I I'm not even convinced that climate change is a real thing I mean, the world climate change is a real thing. Everybody knows that. But I'm not sure that it's going to be to the death and destruction of us all. I'm not convinced. I'm not for the other way either, right? I'm, I'm just think we need more information. I really think the emphasis should be, okay, the emphasis should be on not worrying about CO2 or the gases in the planet and the atmosphere, but pollution. We should be worrying. I've always thought that pollution is the biggie. If we farmed with and and lived our lives, not just farming, these are the people in the cities as well. If we worked with the, with the environment and and really made a concerted, honest effort in dealing with pollution, then I think the planet would have been no threat at all. So, with the farmers being punished, I think that's just more publicised now. And there's more people, I mean, the people are pushing the climate thing all the time. So the farmers are going to be the, the ones that bear the brunt of it. I but think they're also the solution. Yes, they are. We know, well, we know that. CO2, that's the, the life giver of all plants. Cheryl, I want to come back to um, something practical for the listeners. And, and you said, and, and I'm fascinated by this, I mean, it was the first First time I looked through a microscope was with you and Phil Gray up at Chaos Springs there, and it was moving, man. It was like, you might recall my reaction. <laughs> I first do, time, I do. <laughs> first time seeing this life that I've been spending a, a long time talking about. You were very noisy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, again, a lot of similarities. I think your reports were very much the same as mine at school. <laughs> Compost tea, like, you know, we, we as farmers traditionally you know when I was a farmer if someone said to me compost tea I'd think oh yeah hippie you know <laughs> and then and then I saw compost tea that was made and and I saw it through the microscope and it was like teeming with life and so I mean obviously it's beneficial what can farmers is it something that's is it simple enough that farmers can do this on their own can they make stuff like compost tea on their farms Yes, yes. There's a, I mean, the people call it compost tea, but I think that's more of a generic term. When Elaine talked about compost tea, she always had active aerobic compost tea. That was her. It was so. What was that? A A C T. That was the acronym. And what she meant by that was that you would take your compost, and she always stressed that the compost had to be good, really aerobic 
good compost. And if you were really committed, then you would look at your compost before you made the tea under the microscope as well, so that you would be pretty sure that you had all the nematodes and the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa, what have you, that they were already in, in the compost. Because once you've, what we're doing with compost tea is extracting it using water. And the extraction process is not by uh, just letting water drip down through the compost and taking what comes out the bottom because Elaine always explains to you that the bacteria and the fungi and the other critters um, they're all glued and tied to the particles of soils this is so that they stay in the soil they're glued and tied to the actual root systems as well and the idea is is that you introduce an energy source so her idea was that you'd got a uh, say a rubbish bin full of water you introduced a water source, an air source in the bottom. You could use coils and the bubbles had to be quite fine. So you get a hose and poke holes in it, make the bubbles fine, make sure that they, they went right through all of the water. So it wasn't just a column of bubbles going up the middle. It was bubbles diffusing out right through the whole volume of water to make sure that your oxygen levels stayed high. And that would jostle the compost around. You could put the compost in a bag with holes in it like a net like a tea bag where the compost tea I guess that's where it came from and um that the the movement and the jostling would um just shape the, the the biology out and they would be then swimming freely in the water and that used that process Elaine's system used to say would take about eight hours and then you would introduce foods and the foods would be things like humic acid fish um, seaweed, maybe a little sugar. And of course, all these things feed different parts. If you remember from that course that you did, Jono, it's the humic acids and the fish that feed the fungi and the sugars and fish, uh, seaweed rather, they feed the bacteria. And, and so you'd do it for another, say, eight hours or so. And then the organisms would, provided there was enough oxygen in there, they would breed and build up. And then you take that water out, strain out the compost and apply it straight away onto whatever you wanted to, like whether it was an orchard or a farm. So that was a really good system. But the thing was that making sure the compost was good was often not done. And making sure that the oxygen levels were good was often not done. So a lot of people wound up <clears throat> having a, some major, major problems. I mean, there were several apple orchards down in the bay in the round Napier way that actually fell over with black spot because people had relied on compost tea alone to to reduce the levels of black spot and of course it got a really big a real bad name after that but it was not because the compost tea didn't work well it didn't in this case but the compost tea wasn't good so that was the difficulty was making sure that it was really good and that's why we used to ship it over to well, we used to fly it over to Lismore to get it tested and that's what you saw was all those organisms but bad organisms can as you notice probably can thrive in those conditions as well and be just as mobile you know just as swim around just as much so it doesn't necessarily mean that the tea is good if you see a lot of movement mm. it's the organisms that you want to see yeah so you can actually have a detrimental effect if you've got poor quality compost. Well, I did. Say, yeah. yeah. Wow. But and there's lots of other ways of doing it, of course, as well. Yes. And what are the things that you would say would make, like you mentioned fungi, bacteria, protozoa, nematodes. Uh, what, what sort of indicates a good, in your opinion, in your experience, like what are you looking for to say, right, this is good. This is, this is sweet. In as tea? In tea? Yes, and tea. Well, actually, let's go. Let's let's start with the compost and then the tea. Well, the compost. I would want to know that the fungal levels were there. I would want the fungi to be pretty active too. We used to activate it, put it in a little tray, and add some foods because um, you probably can't remember. But if you look underneath the microscope at a piece of fungi that's not active, it's sort of flat. And yeah, flat. And when it is active, it's sort of round like a piece of spaghetti like a straw you showed me i saw yeah. specifically yeah. the like, you can yeah. even and see it, the opening yeah and and it's the end of it if you see the end of it like a little tip 
it's got a curved growing tip on it. So that's active. So in, in the compost, I'd want to see that it's actively growing. I'd want to see that the bacterial levels are good. I'd like there to be nematodes. Um, nematodes are really important. Actually, a lot of people will use conventional systems, will use nematicides, which are things that kill off nematodes, thinking, oh, I've got root knot nematode, kiwi fruit industry, or um, a ring nematode, which is in the cherry industry. Most nematodes are actually um, beneficial. There's, when you look at there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, the vast majority are good and they're really important. They're voracious eaters. So, you know, they'll eat other organisms and they'll eat bad guys, they'll eat bad nematodes. And they, in the process of doing that, they're pooing out huge amounts of nitrogen, right? Which is what you want. Um, if they're put on a nematocyte, they're just killing off all the good guys. It's just pointless. So the, the nematodes in the compost don't actually grow, but I'd like to see them there. And I definitely want to see them in the compost if we can have them. If the compost is, has been made and it's got too hot, you know, like sometimes you see compost and people are saying, oh, my compost got up to 73 or 75 or something like that. Well, they're effectively sterilizing it, you know, and they're killing off all of the fungi and all of those other little critters. It'll take a long time for them to come back, if at all. So the, the things that I want to see in the compost, the bacteria and the fungi, I want to see active fungi, protozoa, the little guys that was around that you saw in the microscope. Everybody loves protozoa because they're easy to see and nematodes but there's a whole lot of other little critters as well that we don't measure right so you get those in the compost and then one of the ways of making sure that your extraction process is working when you start making the tea is to note more or less the levels that you've got in your compost and then after making the tea see what you've extracted into the tea if there's nothing but you know it was there to start with then you'll know that either your Maybe your product has gone anaerobic or maybe the energy source that you're adding is not enough. Um, some people use a Venturi, incidentally. Some people will use a stirrer like Steve Erickson at Chaos Springs, which his is really effective because it introduces air as well. Um, there's more than one way to skin this cat. And um, you mentioned temperature. Is that an important factor when we're doing the liquid extraction phase does it need to be some kind of temperature well I used to start off like if you're in the depths of the South Island and it get damn cold down there um, if you're trying to grow something and your water coming out is say around about six or three or something like that not a lot is going to grow not for a while it's going to take a long time so what I used to do is start off I used to use in the really cold mornings I used to use a calf warmer milk warmer to just heat it up to about 15 degrees and then I'd take it out, right? So I'd start off getting the temperature up so that it would activate everything and everything would start moving and, and, and growing. And then just through the 24-hour process, which is what it was, I would let it cool down to ambient. Because you've got to remember that organisms like bacteria, I think in a degrees change of about four or five degrees, a different set of bacteria will start to kick into being active and the original set will drop away. So the idea is to have diverse temperature range, which means diverse species. This is my, my, this is, I don't, this is how I feel about it. This is my logic telling me this. And um, remembering too, that in the soil, it may, the soil temperatures may be much, quite a lot different to the temperature of the water that you're brewing. So you want that big, long, that big, um, vast diversity of temperature to, to give you that diversity in your biology so that they will survive. They won't go to, they won't die if the temperatures drop. They'll senesce, they'll go to sleep. But you want those numbers there so that when the temperatures become appropriate, then a different set will, is there to kick in and do the job. If they're, if they're not there, then you're going to have a gap, aren't you? And maybe the supply of nitrogen or other minerals will be reduced to the plant at that time. Two more questions, Cheryl, that are on my mind after that. Would chlorinated water affect microorganisms? Town supply type chlorinated water? Mm. Um, a little bit um, initially, but chlorine evaporates pretty quickly. So, um, oh, Especially with that oxygen. Yeah, if you can smell, exactly. If you can smell it, 
like it's really strong you know sometimes tap water and town supply water is just I think geez I'm not going to eat this because it's just going to kill my biome and my gut but I think that if you it, the, the best bet if it's really chlorinated if you're at all worried about it would be to just bubble your water before you put your compost in there for say half an hour or an hour an hour max I don't think you need to do it if you can't smell it then you're okay that's brilliant and secondly would application time like time of day and let's say like weather is that something farmers need to yeah keep in mind obviously you're dealing with living creatures I mean that makes perfect sense um if you're if you're and and temperature and dryness right so if you're putting on say say you're down in central otago for example again and some of that dry land around there if you put compost tea on in the middle of the day or even at the end of a hot afternoon it's just it probably evaporate before it even gets a chance to get into the soil so you would put it on in the morning and early in the morning or last thing at night even if you can do it just before dusk actually I would do it first thing in the morning because then there's going to be a bit of dew hopefully and you've got a better chance of the biology making it into the soil if it's really cold I wouldn't worry and the biology is going to be pretty sluggish anyway you're better on actually if off oh, actually if, if it's really cold put on foods to wake your microbes up in the soil and it's really a Compost tea, I would be putting on, if it's a soil application, probably more, I wouldn't do it in the winter, in, in the really cold climates. If there's anything like a frost, anything below, say, eight degrees, I wouldn't put it on. I would, you know, if your soil temperatures are dropping, then it's, foods are better off. And the foods will actually activate, you might activate the microbes, and that will heat up your soil a little bit. Because activated microbes in the soil can lift your temperatures by a couple of degrees and it's the same on leaves too because compost really active compost if you spray it onto a crop like grapes or kiwi fruit even um, you've got a better and you cover the the, the leaf by about 80 percent minimum 70 percent maybe 70 percent minimum then um that they're going to breed and live and they're going to cover all the infection sites and they will actually help you if it's active stress active so lots of foods it will help um, protect the plant against frosts to a degree there's a whole lot of other things that go on at once okay there's not just one thing that's going to do the job it's a combined effort but this is this is how it works yeah oh so I could talk to you all day Cheryl honestly this is just this is fascinating stuff I keep thinking about Uncle Ted's uh, uh God, yeah. I think of my old man's overalls and he was a spraying contractor and all of our clothes would go in the washing machine and come out a bit smelly. I, I definitely resonate with what you're saying there. You mentioned, you know, 20 years doing the soil food web. Is it still a thing now? Can people still get their soil tested in New Zealand? Yes, I actually decided that I was getting too long in the tooth to do it. So I... Um, I've been hunting. I was hunting for well over a year actually to find somebody suitable to take the to take it over because it was a small business that could be managed at home easily. But the people had to have the passion, and um, and the thing about being a one person operator, you tend your personality tends to become the business. So it was hard for for my personality for somebody to get somebody else that would take it over and, and build theirs on. And luckily, I did find some really great people. Um, down the South Island, it's uh, Phil and Viv Gray. They're in Hamner Springs, which is nice and central between the two islands, I thought. We talked about it for quite a lot between the, the three of us. And then they decided that, yes, they would buy it. And they've taken it to another level. They're taking it into the 21st century. I was just a little bit too old school. And um, Phil has a really strong background in organic um, farming. Be, um, dry stock I think he was yes it was dry stock and his he wasn't all that clued up initially on the horticultural side of things but he's learning really fast really very I like the pair of them immensely Phil's got a very dry wit so when you first talk to Phil he sounds a bit gruff but he's he's just the they're just the nicest people and really really committed and they're practitioners still not farming anymore 
but they they've got a big um, section with where the lab is and uh, Viv's very keen on out and she, she doesn't like doing housework at all actually Viv doesn't I hope she doesn't mind me saying that but she loves to be outside and and doing things and they're really keen on nature and the outdoors and the environment and love farmers yeah no, they're wonderful people I, I 100% agree I've spent plenty of time with Phil now and his passion uh, shines through and I get what you're saying about the humor it helps if you can see <laughs> Phil's face because yes, you can see you can see that he's big smile, but if you're on the phone, it'd be <laughs> oh, what a grumpy old shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cheryl, if you look across your career, are you glad that you did what you did? Because 20 years is a long time to commit to something. You know, like if you look back, you know, what what jumps into mind? How does it make you feel handing the torch over and all your hard work is continuing? If I if I met Cheryl in the street when she was um, in a, in her thirties, I would say, just get your ass into gear, Cheryl, and just do it. And I would tell anybody that you know a lot of people as they get on, you know, and they think getting on 30, 40 is you know, oh gosh, I've missed the boat and I I can't do this anymore. You know, I I can't go back and retrain. That's rubbish. You can retrain at any age. So never, if you feel like doing it, just go ahead and do it. That's my belief. What was the other question, part of that question you asked me? Like, I, I want to know, like, is it something that has left you with a sense of satisfaction that your work has made a difference in this country? It does when you say it. I don't actually think about it a lot. It was hard to let go. I had to make a conscious effort to shut my mouth and just let Phil do it, you know. I got, I'm, I'm a control freak. I'm an A-type personality. Right? I'm a control freak. You tell my husband and my kids all say the same. God's sake, Cheryl. <laughs> so that was that was hard. But but um, if you're being thoughtful about who I gave the business to, you know, who I handed it over to, I think that helped. That helped. I knew I had the right people. And I knew that I, I trusted them. Trust is really important. Yeah. Are you excited that we're, uh, do you believe that we're, that there's more velocity in the space in New Zealand? Are we, are we moving? Frustratingly slow. Mm -hmm. I just wish more farmers, and I blame, I blame, dare I say it, the media, every, it, it, all media, right? The, the word getting out there, it's just too slow. The, the farmer groups are too slow. You know, if we, want, if we want to set ourselves up as the place to get food, like New Zealand, as our export industry goes, what better way than to do it properly, to make money out of it, to, to, to get production up? To, we know, you and I know, there is no problem with production. It's just people are not getting the information of how to do it out there. And that's people like you are out there spreading the word. And it is getting out there and it has picked up in speed. It is maybe that's where we're at. Maybe we're just starting the inertia. We're just getting rid of the inertia so that we're just starting the, you know, this car is being pushed and it's getting faster and faster. I hope. Yeah. We're about to let the clutch out in second gear and jumpstart that. Jumpstart it. Yeah. Maybe third gear. Um, <laughs> The fact that you and I are here talking probably says that, probably says we're pretty close to that. Yeah. And I can't imagine what that's been for like, like for you, you know. And I sometimes feel it too. Like, you know, Quorum Sense, the organisation, has been alive now since 2018. And, you know, we've got an incredible network of farmers sharing knowledge. I think that's been the most powerful thing in my journey is just getting farmers together, sharing knowledge, getting people like you in, you know, that, that sort of teach us a few things and uh, and let the farmers do the work, man. Let them yeah. figure it out. Let them discover. Because they're the ones that know their land, eh? You know, they're the they ones. Are. They're the experts. But for goodness sake, if, you, if you're going to put legislation out there, don't just cut, put it out there without an alternative. Mm. I mean, how are they, how can anybody survive any industry survive like that you just say take cut the feet out from underneath them and not give them alternative what would you say to someone just starting their regenerative farming journey Cheryl maybe they're hearing this podcast and they're like oh I've never thought about the biology in my soil before or wow I've never considered the effects of my inputs on my soil's health right at the beginning what would you say to them 
just be brave. Just be brave and do it. Just bite the bullet and do it. Because once you start, it's surprising the amount of doors and avenues that open up to you to, to show you the way. Yeah. Cheryl Prue, it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to have you here this morning. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, you know, like hopefully less busy lifestyle, but I know you're still working. I know you're still out there doing training at pack houses and things, but honestly, just thank you so much for being up for this and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge. My pleasure. My pleasure entirely. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.